Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Margaret Battersby-Black. She's an award-winning trial lawyer practicing with the Chicago-based law firm of Levin and Perconi. Uh, And I'll read a little bit about her so you've got a good idea of her background. Margaret joined Levin and Perconi as a law clerk in 2006, was promoted to associate attorney in 2008, and was named partner in 2014. Her practice focuses on representing people who have been the victims of nursing home abuse, and medical malpractice. Margaret is well known for her work on behalf of individuals and families in lawsuits involving nursing home abuse and negligence. She has secured many notable high six and seven figure settlements in cases involving falls, pressure sores, and medication errors. Margaret is committed to the advancement of women in the legal profession and serves as a mentor to law students and younger lawyers. In 2015, she was honored by Chicago Kent Law School as Outstanding Young Alumna of the Year. This award recognizes uh, alumni who have made significant contributions to the law school and the legal community. Uh, she was a founding member and was the inaugural chair of the Illinois Trial Lawyers Women's Caucus. She's active in the Women's Bar Association of Illinois, the American Constitution Society, the American Association for Justice, Illinois Trial Lawyers Association, and Illinois State Bar Association. She graduated from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor with a business degree and thereafter obtained her Juris Doctorate degree from Chicago Kent College of Law. Margaret, welcome to Trial Law Review. Great to have you as a guest today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jason. So before we dive too deeply into the law stuff, in uh, reading your bio, it jumped out to me about uh, your leadership roles early on in school and sports as well as within your family unit, were you just driven to lead from a young age and just had a desire to succeed? I I know for me, I was very driven as a youngster when it came to sports and leadership, so it kind of struck a chord with me. Yeah, I mean, looking back, I probably didn't realize that it was happening at the time, but, um, you know, as the oldest child in the family, I think probably naturally I became a leader in some ways and um, took an interest pretty early on just in in school. Um, I guess, you know, it probably wouldn't surprise many people who know me now to know that I was voted teacher's pet um, many times in my, my young school years. Um, but that kind of translated as I, I grew up to a student leadership and student government. And, um, you know, I was often would be selected by uh, you know, the administration or teachers at my high school, if there were committees to be convened that they wanted student input in. Um, and then, of course, uh, notably on the soccer field as well. I, I became um, 
one of our high school's youngest captains of our team and my senior year led the uh, team that I was on the varsity team to our first state championship. So um, those probably, you know, served as the foundation for what I'm doing now, which is um, managing as the managing partner um, alongside my my buddy, Mike Bonamart, the law firm in Chicago, where we now have um, approaching 30 lawyers. Well, uh, as a father of two daughters who played uh, high school varsity soccer, uh, I can identify with that and watching them uh, actually go to the state finals too. Uh, they didn't win, but it was fun to watch my daughters and the skill sets that they've developed as part of being on teams like that. So certainly a lot of, I think, transferable skills. I know for me, uh, I was a cyclist um, in bike race growing up and that, that laid a lot of foundation for me later on, I think, to be successful i think those those experiences and opportunities are pretty invaluable for for children yeah and coming full circle i'm watching my kids uh, at least start now with sports and leadership roles so it's it's fun to see although it is, it is kind of hard to be on the sidelines when uh when you know a lot about the sport so <laughs> Yeah, agreed. I agreed. I played soccer as a youngster too. So it was, it was always hard. I, I, I think I was one of those parents that was always just very like, you know, rooting, rooting, rooting. And, uh, sometimes that, uh, you can get caught up in the emotion of it all, but it's fun. It, it's great to, I think, see kids get the opportunity to, to learn some really important, valuable life skills on, on the field. So, so I wanted to ask you, because you had a very different path in terms of starting out your career that you got a degree in business um, and worked in finance, uh, being a successful financial analyst at JP Morgan. How has that played a part in getting to where you are today? Um, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I did always kind of want to be a lawyer. I, I come from um, a family of lawyers, judges. My dad uh, is still practicing as a plaintiff's lawyer. And when I went to college, um, I was a little bit lost about what, what I should major in because even though I wanted to be a lawyer and, and I've always been fairly uh, comfortable speaking and on my feet, um, I was always better at math. I mean, I was always, you know, getting the the top grades in in at math in math in high school, and that didn't change when I went to college. You know, I was taking economics classes and accounting classes and a number of the prerequisites that you would take to to be a finance major to have a career in in some sort of a quantitative based profession. And so when I, and, and of course then, you know, a lot of people who are going to go to law school will major in some sort of a liberal arts uh, background or, or do pre-law, which wasn't an, an option at the institution that I was at for undergrad, but um, Michigan had a really good uh, business school, an undergrad business school. And my dad said, you know, you're really good at these classes, you're liking them, why not get your degree in business? It can set you apart from your peers. Um, at the time, you know, I graduated from college, which was back in 2002. I think, you know, we were probably not where we are now with um, people going back to law school. A lot of people are going directly to law school from an undergrad path. And so um, that too, you know, obviously had the opportunity if I got some work experience to set me apart when it came to applying. So um, I, you know, unbeknownst to me really when I 
set down that path, you actually have to get into the business school at Michigan, and it's pretty competitive. Um, and so I had to pretty work pretty hard to do that. And then, you know, of course, once I was in, um, I became very immersed in the culture and the curriculum, and I actually wanted to go and work in business um, for a while. So um, I got to do an internship my junior year in New York City for American Express, and I loved that and being in the big city and being kind of on my own and independent. And so, um, but I really did feel that that New York was pretty overwhelming um, from someone who, you know, grew up in a suburb of Detroit. So I visited Chicago and um, that summer after my internship and, and really liked it and started focusing on opportunities there and the uh, opportunity at you know, what is now J.P. Morgan Chase um, just presented itself to me as a really good, uh, you know, number one, a great job where I'd be independent and able to, you know, be on my own in Chicago. It was a dev leadership development program where you would work in different areas of the bank and get exposure to different um, kinds of, you know, corporate finance and banking and also work under the mentorship of some of the leaders of the bank. Um, and so I, you know, I did that. Um, it was a great program. It was a great company. Um, I kind of quickly learned that I didn't think corporate law would be the law that I'd be practicing just because it was, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of spreadsheets and, um, you know, I'm, I'm better at interacting with people. So, um, but, but, you know, as my dad suggested, he's often right, it did set me apart. And I think it, it got me into a mindset, you know, a grown up mentality. You know, I had been in the professional world. I had had to interact with um, people who were, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years my, my senior and, you know, very diverse group of individuals. So um, it, I think it helped me take law school more seriously. And then I know that it helped me uh, get my job that I have now because there's a famous story in our firm about how when I was a law clerk, or well, when I applied for a law clerk position, one of the things that apparently set me apart from my peers was that when I came to the interview, I not only emailed a copy of my resume, but I brought a paper copy with me. And my, you know, mentor and now partner, Steve Levin, you know, remarked over and over about how professional that was. And, you know, he could tell it was very corporate. And um, I mean, of course, he's kind of a funny guy. So he was a little bit joking. But, you know, in all seriousness, when I think back to my first couple of years at Levin and Burkani, I did get a lot of compliments about professionalism and um, you know, not being like a typical law student, like I was a real grown up who came into, you know, the firm and was ready to work and ready to learn and took it seriously. So. Well, I guess two things. One, I should have asked you the correct pronunciation of the first partner's name in your firm because I mispronounced that. So apologize for that. That's uh, okay. Second, he, he gets it all the time, but I, now you know. Yeah. It, well, there's a really... Uh, pretty uh, famous mass tort law firm here in, in Florida, 11 Papantonio. So just made this assumption. Uh, anyway, um, you know, it, it's funny because one of my regrets was not studying business before going to law school and then also uh, not taking advantage of my law school. I had a dual um, JD MBA program. Uh, and just in retrospect, I wish I would have done that for so many reasons. Uh, not the least of which is all I deal with these days is really business versus 
the practice of law, even though I still have a law practice that's outside of Synergy, it's still, you know, I, I think that business background helps you no matter what, but certainly on the professionalism side, the experience that you had, that, that's a good way to prepare for the realities of once you hit law school and then, you know, try to find your first job out of law school. So I, I was going to ask you, you know, about your family background and about your dad specifically. I, I'm assuming that's what created that passion for the idea of not just becoming a lawyer, but becoming a trial lawyer and helping to protect the vulnerable like you witnessed your father, because certainly what you do in your niche and what we'll talk about, about a lot about that is, is really uh, protecting some, some very vulnerable people. Yeah, um, I think I think it definitely um, served, served as my inspiration as I was kind of trying to shape my path as a lawyer, um, because I really, when I started law school, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and my dad tells this famous story about how when uh, my dog growing up, I was about 14 and, you know, it was an old dog. We had had the dog since I was born. And there was some discussion about maybe having to put the dog to sleep. And, you know, I was uh, just a, apparently a, a, a strong advocate against that. And I, you know, said this you know, vet doesn't know what he's talking about and, you know, I'll get a lawyer and, you know, we'll fight this. And my dad said, Margaret, you know, I am a lawyer. And he, I said, well, yeah, but you're the one who's suggesting this. So, um, you know, apparently I was going to wage war against my own father, uh, you know, early on. And so, um, but I really, I, I, I did, you know, as I grew up, my, my dad would tell the stories of families and clients he helped. And I remember actually, you know, even at my high school graduation, um, one of his former clients who he had helped get, uh, you know, a nice verdict um, for a traumatic brain injury came, you know, to the to the party and, you know, was always coming to our family events and was kind of one of the, you know, part of the family and, and repeatedly would tell us, you know, what a great guy my dad was and how he'd helped him. And so that was instilled a in me early. And when I um, made the switch from business to law and knew that business really wasn't something that I wanted to do, um, I did think, you know, about a little bit about what my dad did. And I had worked at his office growing up, you know, summers or, I don't know, occasional, you know, coming with him and helping the secretaries and doing things. Um, but I didn't obviously have a flavor for like what it was really like. Um, and so, I kept an open mind about it, and when the opportunity to work at Levin and Perconti presented itself, you know, I thought, why not? Let's, um, you know, I've got a background, you know, family background in this stuff, and I'll give it a try. And, um, you know, that summer that I, I was a law clerk in between my first and second year, I was uh, able to work uh, alongside Steve Levin and Mike Bonomar on a nursing home uh, trial. And that was in 2006, and that case went to verdict. And um, we got at the time, you know, we, as in me and the law, the law clerk and, and the actual lawyers, a record in Illinois. It was a record verdict. And I had um, helped to prepare the plaintiffs, the witnesses. There, there were two daughters who had lost their mother. And I had lost my mother when I was 23. And so I knew a lot of the feelings and things that they were experiencing and, and was able to kind of help to prep the lawyers to, to draw those things out at trial. 
And um, after that trial, it was pretty clear to me that this was where I was meant to be and what I wanted to do. Um, and so to come kind of full circle on that, I'm sure you'll be asking me about this later in the podcast, that uh, record verdict stood from 2006 until 2017 when um, I tried the case that broke the verdict. And so, you know, that's a fun little story for our firm as well in my kind of formation as a lawyer and then, you know, the, the student becomes a teacher kind of analogy. So your passion for representing those harmed in nursing home abuse situations in your niche, was that something that just evolved out of the, the work that the firm was focused in or did you have some specific connection to wanting to do that? Obviously, like I was saying, because your niche is really all about protecting a very vulnerable part of our population, the elderly that are, are in nursing homes um, and, and some of these stories are, are really appalling. I, I, I watched one in particular that you were being interviewed um, alongside a, a family member whose loved one was basically, you know, being taunted in a nursing home and they caught it on video. The, the offenders put it up on social media, which is just incredibly um, disturbing that people would, would do that to, to people that are in need of care. And, and that's the whole point of them being in these these places, but um, just curious about just your connection and and passion for representing people that are are the victims of of abuse in these situations. Yeah, I mean, so um, that's an interesting question too. I think you know certainly the first uh, summer that I was at Levin and Percanti was really actually eye opening to me about the horrors that exist out there because. Um, I come from a, a pretty big Irish Catholic family and had, had been fortunate to be able to have grandparents, you know, living grandparents who lived into their old ages and, um, for again, fortunately, came from a family who could um, be with them and keep them in their homes as long as possible and, you know, rotate. And I remember growing up, I would sometimes be given a shift. Everyone would be given a shift or a day with you know, one of the aging grandparents or, or a job, you know, you've got to go pick up grandma for Sunday dinner or things like that. So I, I um, you know, I saw what it could be like, you know, to age gracefully and in the comfort of your own home and with family members who are there to protect you and to, to try to avoid, you know, placing you in a nursing home. Um, but ultimately, you know, even the, the best of um, situations, you can't, account for all things that might happen. I mean, we eventually did have to put um, one of my grandmothers in a nursing home. And, you know, I saw some of the things there that I had been learning about working at Levin and Percanti. So even, you know, the, the you know, most aggressive and, and um, astute families who can put, afford to put someone, you know, a family member there around the clock and really stay on top of them still suffer this kind of abuse and neglect. And so, you know, I quickly learned, like, what about those who don't really have anyone? Um, and, you know, they're in nursing homes and there's no one checking on them and there's no one calling it to the attention, you know, of the, the administration or, you know, in some cases, the authorities that their loved ones are not being attended to or their call lights aren't being answered. They're not being changed. They've got pressure sores, those kinds of things. So, 
it was kind of a combination. Um, I've always been able to get along really well with elderly people, and I think they're fascinating, and I love talking to them and hearing their stories and their perspectives on life. So, you know, I've grown close with a lot of my clients, whether they be widows or victims themselves. Um, and I think certainly, you know, some of my uh, upbringing and family environment contributed to that. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I, I did want to ask you uh, about being a woman trial lawyer because I've had several other uh, female trial lawyers on the podcast and I've asked them about this and, you know, pretty much uniformly, I think their answers have been that they, they have seen some kind of gender bias um, given the, the male domination of the field of, of trial law. Um, I'm just curious if your experiences have been the same, if you, you know, can talk about you know, the top couple of challenges that you've been presented with in terms of being a woman in what is mostly a, a male-dominated uh, profession. Sure, yeah. Um, so I don't think I know any woman who started her career as a young female trial lawyer who has not been mistaken for the court reporter at one time or the other. So, you know, that happened a number of times um, in in my, my, I'll just say youth, first couple of years practicing. Um, I mean, at the firm that I'm at, I am fortunate enough to be working alongside of, um, with people who, you know, think that obviously women can offer unique perspectives um, and and be you know really good and sometimes different advocates for their clients and so in terms of that I've been really lucky I've been given every opportunity that there really is um, to 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 do what I want and to to reach for the stars there's really no limit um, except for my own abilities honestly so that's great but yeah I mean so you know, going through maternity leaves and having to tell the judges that, you know, I can't try the case or I, you know, I, that I'm worried about that deadline because I, I may be out. Um, even honestly, some of the responses from, from female judges that I've gotten on, on, on those kinds of things. Um, every trial that I've ever been involved in, there's always a juror who has a comment about my dress or my appearance, whether it's positive or negative. Um, and, you know, so that's another thing that you have to be conscientious of. Um, I think, you know, on the, on, I've, I've probably received more fair treatment from judges than from some of the defense lawyers that I've been up against. I mean, certainly this does not in any way, um, shape or form me to characterize that all of them are like this because a great majority of them are not, but especially when I was first practicing, you know, men who didn't take me seriously or who said they were going to call Steve or John, um, you know, to ask them or, you know, like you're taking this deposition. And I think honestly, it's worked to my advantage because they underestimate me. And if there's one thing that I do, I, I, I'm more prepared than everyone else. I mean, that's the one thing I know I can control. And, you know, most like most probably type A women trial lawyers, I'm a control freak. So I have probably gained an advantage in that regard where they have come to underestimate me and learn their lesson. So um, those are kind of some of my experiences. And I think I'm at a point now where I've established myself enough 
that I'm sure these biases still continue to exist, but I don't experience them to the extent that I see some of my younger colleagues experiencing them. So I think youth is also part of it. Um, and you know, then on the other on the other hand, you know, I've had the experience where I've had juries that have been made up of you know strong women, and they love seeing a strong woman, and they particularly love situations where I'm trying a case with a, a man where the man defers to me or you know treats me as an equal or even like a boss, um, which I think is is hilarious. Uh, so I've definitely had both both experiences. So, you know, when I was reading your bio at the start of the podcast, there, there is, you know, a, a sentence or two about your commitment to the advancement of women in the legal profession, which is kind of what led me down the path of asking that previous question. But so I think I know the answer, but it'd be good for you to talk about it, why you think it's important for you to be a champion um, for the advancement of women and mentoring law students and young lawyers um, as they enter the profession, given what you've outlined as your experience? Yeah, so um, I think you're probably referring to the fact that, you know, I like to highlight the fact that when I started at my firm, um, there was one female partner and, you know, there weren't many women associates. And today we've grown to a firm that has five female partners. And I think it's, I mean, I think we're in like the 13s to 14s with women who work for us. And I think it's important for a number of reasons. I think honestly, in any profession, mentoring is, um, is the key to success. And, you know, my mentor happened to be um, Steve Levin. I mean, he's, I have many, but he would be probably the, the first one that comes to mind. And he's nothing like me. You know, I mean, he's, he's a man. Um, he was older than me. He, he, he's not someone that I look and see myself as. Um, but I think it's important for people to be able to, to see others who are similar to them succeeding. So, um, I was also fortunate. I, there was a woman uh, who start who was a partner when I started, um, Susan Novasad, who you know today is my partner, and she um, was a, a great comfort to me in going through some of the things that women have to go through when they are working and raising children, and um, that was great. So to be able to to see her and then to see others and combine you know the aspects of all of them that I liked was great, um, and so. I think that's important for, for, for women. I mean, even just things like, you know, maternity leave and, um, you know, how do you balance things at home and what do you do when you're at a deposition and someone is trying to take advantage of you because you're young or you're a woman? Because, you know, I mean, S Steve Levin could offer me advice, but I'm not sure that he had been there in terms of the kinds of things that we were experiencing. So... Um, that's why I think it's important. And I, and I also recognize that, you know, diverse people bring diverse viewpoints and diverse skills to the workplace. And I don't like to stereotype along gender lines all the time, but there's definitely things that I see, you know, the women at um, our firm being uh, able to do better than some of the men. And it, I think just is, is a function of us being women. And, you know, I'm the men are, are better at some things too. That's not to say that everyone doesn't have their unique skill set, but 
um, particularly when it comes to client relations and um, organization and things like that. I think, you know, that's where women really excel and we definitely need all kinds of, of viewpoints to, to be successful. Absolutely. That's a great viewpoint. Thanks for sharing that. So I want to get back to, you know, what your, your practice focuses on, which is representing people in these sometimes complex and catastrophic uh, nursing home elder abuse cases and medical malpractice cases. I, I've seen some of your results and they're really impressive. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of cases uh, of significance. The first one is the Grower v. Claire Oaks case. Can you tell us a little bit about the case and why it was significant? Yeah, so um, Grower v. Claire Oaks is a case that involved a woman, uh, Dolores Trendle, who had um, gone to a nursing home, which you know really was for rehabilitation. She had fractured her ankle and the plan for her was to get rehab, go home, and she was a very, very independent 80-year-old at the time this happened. She was still driving, she was still babysitting her grandchildren, she was still doing all of her own grocery shopping and you know, chores around the house, um, had, a, had an active social life, and so this was really kind of like a bump in the road for her. And she went to this nursing home, uh, Claire Oaks, and she was supposed to receive Coumadin, uh, which is a blood thinner, which she had been receiving for years. Many people her age are on blood thinners for various conditions. For her, it happened to be uh, for a heart condition, and the medication was being prescribed specifically to, uh, to avoid a stroke. And um, so that, that's the setting for the story. Dolores unfortunately passed away about a year and a half before the case went to trial. And so um, we were bringing the, the lawsuit on behalf of her family members who were following through with it on her behalf. Um, and I got involved in this case about three weeks before trial. So one of my partners who I mentioned earlier, Susan Novasat, was looking for a trial partner. And it just so happened that I had my calendar clear for this one. And so she and I um, started, you know, talking about the possibility. We had never tried a case before, and um, you know, we we're looking forward to to partnering up. And the stars aligned, and I became, you know, one of her trial partners. We also had um, an associate, uh, Dan Goldfaden, with us. So there was three of us, and um, you know, the case also involved her attending physician, who was the medical director at this nursing home, who had been prescribing the Coumadin. And I learned as soon as I got involved that there was, you know, two sides to this story on the defense that that couldn't both be true. Um, the doctor was saying, you know, I would never have cut off Coumadin. Uh, I never intended it. And I know that it could cause a stroke. So um, that was not something, you know, that was part of the plan. And the nursing home was saying, you know, well, that's the order we heard. And so it kind of became... Um, a case where you know it, it was um, a communications case, really, because everyone agreed that what happened shouldn't have happened. Um, but when you're working in a facility like this, and you know there's not enough staff and not enough time, and the staff aren't trained, these are the types of things that happen. So um, we tried this case in June of 2017. Um, we had very skilled opponents. It was a tough, obviously, a, a tough battle. And jury came back and awarded Dolores and her family $4.1 million 
Um, she had suffered a horrible stroke as a result of this medication being cut off, and she had lived for three and a half years with the damages of the stroke, which essentially cut out one side of her body. Um, and now she was obviously one of the more fortunate people who had a great family who could actually take her back into her home and get some of the um, caregiving services and adaptations made to her living situation, but still, she suffered horribly. And so, you know, we were thrilled with the verdict. Um, number one, you know, because obviously, you know, we had to try the case. I mean, they weren't offering any sort of significant funds that would have, you know, given the family justice. And then, of course, number two, because it, it set a record. What, um, I, what will be kind of the part two of this is that it's also notable because it's a case that made some good appellate law. Um, the defense, the nursing home appealed it. Uh, the verdict was against just the nursing home. The doctor was not found to be liable. And when the nursing home appealed the underlying verdict and you know the facts leading up to how we got the guilty verdict against the nursing home, they also appealed a second part of the case, which involves attorney's fees. And so that is kind of I'll stop here just to see if you have any questions because I can I can tell you about that too. That's a, that's an, also a, a very um, interesting and um, uh, thought provoking experience that I had to to petition for those fees and and put on the evidence and then appeal those fees. What share whatever you feel like is is important about this. It's it's an interesting scenario situation, obviously. So you know I'm just noticing by the way like there's this. There's this halo kind of rays of sunshine coming down, and I think we've reached the point of the afternoon where, like, I have a window here and the sun is peeking through. So, I don't know if that bothers you. I, I'm I'm happy to go on, but <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, I had not I had not seen it. Well, I think I think we we can. Okay, um, so in Illinois, um, there's a very great law called the Nursing Home Care Act, the Illinois Nursing Home Care Act. And this Grower uh, for Trendle case was brought under that Nursing Home Care Act. And that act says that if uh, a resident of a nursing home, which in this case our client was, Dolores Trendle was a resident of the nursing home, is abused or neglected by an employee of the home, then the nursing home is liable for that conduct. And if uh, during a, a jury trial is found to be liable, then the nursing home becomes responsible for payment of attorney's fees and costs. And of course, you know, many of these nursing home cases go through the litigation process and they settle before a jury is able to render a verdict. And um, so it's not every day that you get to take one of these cases to trial, but when you do, you get that kind of added incentive. So with a, 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 a yes verdict, um, we then begin the process of petitioning for attorney's fees. And you know, plaintiff's lawyers are in a um, unique situation legally because we don't traditionally bill for our time. Our fees are paid at the end of a case if we're successful and they're calculated on a, as a contingency fee or a percentage of the recovery. And so um, in prior to this case, there had been a number of cases decided about attorney's fees, not necessarily under the Nursing Home Care Act, um, but just in other contexts with attorney's fees. Some of them were under the Nursing Home Care Act. And 
all of the case law was, you know, um, consistent with the fact that you are entitled to attorney's fees if you get a verdict in, under the Nursing Home Care Act. Um, but there had been some debate about how those fees should be calculated. And most of the case law that existed actually dealt with the situation where a verdict was possibly lower than expected or was a smaller case and perhaps the damages were a nominal amount, but the attorneys had taken obviously substantial time uh, to, to try the case and to prepare the case and should be compensated for their time. And so there had been some debate in the law about whether an hourly rate um, was appropriate or a contingency fee rate. And there was some ambiguity um, about it, but generally the law seemed to be that it could be either a contingency fee or an hours times rate basis as long as the um, fee was reasonable. And so in the, and, and then Pausing that discussion for a moment, um, the, the real ambiguity in the law existed because when the Nursing Home Care Act um, states that attorney's fees and costs can be recovered, costs was a subject of debate. And the reason um, that it was a subject of debate is because uh, under just regular Illinois civil procedure, if a litigant takes a case to trial and wins, they can recover costs. And those costs are typically pretty limited, you know, filing fees, um, maybe jury fees, uh, court, maybe a court reporter fee, or whatever kind of standard basic just getting to the courthouse steps fees and costs there, there are. And so in a case like the Grower case where we hired multiple experts, we had, you know, serious medical issues that needed to be explained to the jury through the use of medical illustrations um, and, you know, demonstrative exhibits, our costs, you know, were in excess of $150,000. And so that's a significant, you know, chunk of money. And, you know, this is, by the way, the, the record nursing home verdict. You know, there, there are many other nursing home verdicts out there, you know, that are not substantial, that are in the six figures. And, um, that the costs could eat up some of those verdicts if costs weren't recovered. And so no one had taken the issue up as to what exactly you know, the costs provision meant. And so in, um, you know, in Grower, because the costs were so significant, um, we petitioned and we, we said the costs have to mean litigation costs because the entire spirit and purpose of the Nursing Home Care Act is to encourage and allow people who wouldn't ordinarily have a voice to bring these claims. And, you know, the, the reasoning behind that is that in personal injury claims, a lot of the damages, the compensatory damages um, that can get, you know, the verdicts higher and more significant are economic damages. People are wage earners or, you know, uh, death cases where there's a significant number of years that, that a person's life was caused, uh, caused to be shortened by the negligence of a wrongdoer. And so in nursing homes, those two things typically are not present. Usually you're in a nursing home because you're not earning wages, and you're usually in a nursing home because you're in you know at least the last quarter of your life. And so we argued that the legislature, when they enacted the Nursing Home Care Act, recognized that there was a, a, a 
serious vulnerability to this population who was dependent upon others and in a custodial setting, and that if attorneys were not incentivized to take these cases, that many of these cases would go on unprosecuted. And I think the legislature rightfully so recognized that trial attorneys are, you know, kind of like a private attorney general um, to police these nursing homes because the state can't do it all. And so our arguments were, were based upon that principle that the um, legislature could not have intended for a nursing home resident who's on Medicaid, you know, to be able to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get the expert witness proof that would be required to bring these cases to a jury. And at the trial court level, um, those expenses were granted. The other um, ruling that the trial court judge made was that we had petitioned in this case for a contingency fee. Um, we felt that you know the contingency fee was the fair fee. It was the fee that we had agreed upon by the clients um, at the outset of the case. And in this particular case, because we did such a great job at bringing the case to a verdict, it, it was a, a, a fee that was um, able to compensate us for the work and the risk and the hours that were put in. You know, had the had the verdict not been as sizable, it may not have been the appropriate fee because it, it needs to obviously compensate an office for years of litigation and the trial attorneys for, you know, weeks of preparation and um, significant hours put in. And so um, as um, part of that uh, petition, the other side asked for a hearing on attorney's fees and uh, my my mentor Steve Levin was going to be one of our key witnesses um, because it's recognized fairly well in, in you know our circle that he's kind of one of the pioneers of the Illinois Nursing Home Care Act. He's one of the first lawyers who took the act and um, turned it you know into a successful practice area. And so um, I will tell you that uh, he's one of probably the worst witnesses I've ever had to prepare to give his testimony. Um, I still remember being uh, at his apartment the night before I was supposed to put his testimony on and trying to direct him, you know, which is hard because you have to ask open-ended questions. And, you know, if you prepare your witnesses well, you're expecting certain answers that lead to your next questions. And I was finding him to be very, very difficult to control. Um, and so I was pretty nervous to put him on, but um, at the end of the day, I actually didn't put him on because the other side called him adversely. And that was a much better um, uh, audience for, for Steve um, because he was also similarly not able to be controlled, but he was you know able to kind of push back at some of the principles that the other side was, was setting forth. Um, you know, their their main position, of course, being that an hours times rate fee was appropriate. And Steve explained, you know, why that's simply just not true a lot of times in plaintiff's cases, because we don't have um, we don't have budgets on our time. You know, we don't have a client saying you can only spend this many hours because, you know, there's a budget for litigation, because we're not billing by the hour. So, you know, sometimes to our detriment, we can put hundreds and hundreds of hours into a case to make sure that we get the best result possible for the client. And, you know, in that case, an hour's times rate fee really, you know, it, it may be worse for the defendants because we really do put in a significant amount of time. 
And, um, you know, we're, we're obviously motivated by, um, we're all aligned with the clients. We want to get the best result possible because contingency fee attorneys obviously get a bigger fee if they get a bigger result for their clients. So um, he was very convincing and the judge granted our petition uh, awarding a one-third attorney's fee and uh, costs. And so that was also appealed when the underlying verdict was appealed. And um, I was was present for the um, uh, first district court of appeals hearing, where uh, the judges, you know, probed on these issues. And then, um, of course, the ruling was favorable to us. And so, the Grower case is is kind of a, a very important case in Illinois law. It's now set binding precedent, at least in the first district, uh, with no contrary precedent out there that. You know, an attorney's fee in a case like this could be either a contingency fee or a hours times rate fee, and that under the Nursing Home Care Act, uh, costs can be recovered. So I was going to ask you about just you know the your practice and how it can help protect the elderly. You know what you talked about this idea that you know sometimes there there's limited damages. And when when you're looking at the economic side because they're not a wage earner and they're they're in the last stages of their life how do you tie all of that together because obviously what you're doing you know it, it protects people and also has this this end result that you've described in this particular case you know what what is the significance of all that to you in terms of how it actually helps you know protect the elderly yeah i mean so it, you, our our philosophy is is yeah nursing home residents are, are likely not going to be wage owners and they are likely people who are not going to have tens of years on their life um, but you know if you look at it from the other perspective if you have less than when it's taken from you it's worth more um, and if you have shorter you know years to live then they're they should be lived with dignity and, and they're all the more precious to your loved ones. And so I think if, if you reframe the argument, because I don't think I've been involved in a nursing home case where the defense has not been, oh, this person, you know, was in a nursing home because they were sick and they had, you know, they call them comorbidities because that sounds really bad, but they're really just medical conditions. I mean, you and I both have medical conditions. I can tell you if we were in a nursing home right now, they would be calling them comorbidities and saying that we were there because of these medical conditions, even if they were things like seasonal al allergies. Um, so, you know, you have to embrace the fact that like, yeah, they were there because they had medical conditions and those medical conditions required care and, and made them vulnerable. And those medical conditions did not limit their ability to, to experience suffering. And, you know, they, they, they may have had disabilities, but these injuries that you inflicted upon them disabled them further, disfigured them in some cases. And then with the wrongful death um, damages, so in Illinois and many other states, there are causes of action that you can bring in cases where you're able to prove that the negligence of the wrongdoers in, in these cases, the nursing home, caused someone's death or shortened someone's life. And so an, another one of the arguments that are, are made at the beginnings and middles and ends of these cases is, is that 
all of these comorbidities shortened someone's life. And so, again, you know, we're not getting away from that. We have to embrace that. And we have to talk about the concept that, yeah, these people may have had limited lives ahead of them, but look at all the years that they had li lived and all of the hard work that they had put in and all of the things that they, they did for other people. And then to have, you know, these be the last weeks, days, moments of their lives cut short, um, you know, which is significant to their family, of course, because of negligence, you know, that there's, there's damage there, there's real damage there. So I think, you know, that is, is the perspective that I try to look at each case um, with to, to, to recognize that, yeah, I'm not going to have a million dollar wage earner, um, you know, but, but the, to the family, what happened is priceless. Well, you've built a, a very niche practice in, in this area. What's one tip that you would give to other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in building your practice in this area? Um, wow. So, um, so building, if we're focused on building practice, um, you know, I think the, the one tip that was given to me um, when I started working was you have to let people know what you do because we don't work in a practice where if someone needs a, you know, a real estate lawyer, they, you know, ask around and, and, you know, or, or you could say, oh, you're buying a house. I, you know, that, that's the kind of law I practice. Let me know if you ever need a lawyer. Um, that's just not the kind of thing that is appropriate in the context of a death or a nursing home abuse and neglect. So, You've got to let people know what you do so that when those things happen to them or others, they already know about you. And, you know, I've had multiple people um, reach out to me and say, like, yeah, you know, one of your friends from high school is told me they saw something on Facebook about how you do this. And I have a grandmother and, you know, it's just getting the word out. And of course, when I um, first started, I, you know, Facebook and social media actually weren't really that big. Um, so... That wasn't the way that I initially got the word out. Um, the way that I got the word out was regular communication with family and friends, um, you know, social circles, talking about what you do, telling people what you do, reminding them, hey, if you ever hear anyone that's in need of, of a lawyer like me, please, you know, remember me. Um, speaking engagements. Uh, networking, you know, going to conferences, meeting people, you know, following up on those meetings. Hey, Jason, it was great to hear that you do podcasts. Like if you ever need me for a, a guest, I'd love to talk about this. Um, and so that's really, you know, how you build a practice in terms of getting the business. Um, in terms of building the practice, you know, and, and, and the model to, to prosecute these cases, that's, that's a different story. And I was fortunate enough to come into a firm that kind of had established that model. But I will say that um, I think, you know, the key to continuing a successful practice is to, to stay current with the times. I mean, when I first started working on these cases, charts were handwritten. And, you know, I became a, an expert at looking for like false charting you know, which was progress notes that were written in a weird order or that looked like they were changed or that did, did had different handwriting or that were very suspicious. And in the last, you know, five, probably 10 years, 
all records have become electronic and there are ways to find out when records were written and who wrote them and if they were edited or if they were deleted. And so I think, you know, staying current with the times is also really important so that you're thinking of, you know, creative and innovative ways to get stuff that maybe you couldn't get before, or you have to think of new ways to get things that you could get before. So that's also, I think, important. Um, and, and, and I think lastly, you know, with the nursing home stuff, it, it's just kind of, um, you know, to use a sports analogy again, just playing your own game um, and, and embracing your weaknesses because we can't change the fact that these people were in nursing homes. They obviously had some needs or they, they were disabled or they were sick. And that's going to be the defense's big point. And, you know, let them do that. And, and don't buy into trying to unprove that stuff. Embrace those things and talk about why those things made it all the more important that rules were followed and care was given and risks were appreciated. And, you know, embrace your, your, your case and, and your plaintiff because you're not going to change that. And once you stop trying to chase them down all of these different avenues that they're going to go to and just focus on presenting your case... It, it, it makes things a lot easier. Um, it, it's less stressful. And it's, by the way, I mean, this is said with like 15 years of experience, like this was not something I was doing, you know, probably even eight years ago. I mean, I, and I still chase some of those things, but I also try to focus on like, what, what are the things that are going to see the light of day in a trial? And I want to focus on making those better and those stronger. And, you know, you have to fight a little bit on some of those other things, but you can't get consumed by them because they will make you dislike your case. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you hear about how sick someone was or how disabled someone was, it starts to make you wonder yourself. And so you just kind of have to, you know, focus on your case and, and understand why you're here. Great advice. Thanks for sharing all that. So, um, you know, we're kind of running up against time. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions uh, in, in wrap up. So because of your specialty, do you wind up co-counseling a lot of cases, working with other lawyers where they're referring or bringing you in as co-counsel? Yeah. And so um, that's an excellent question. I mean, we really work in any way um, that a referring attorney would prefer. So I'll just talk about a couple of those relationships. I have attorneys who, um, you and I actually, we talked about this um, earlier before I think the podcast started, who they may be um, elder or elder law attorneys. Um, I, I, I caught myself because I was about to say elder abuse attorney. That's really what I am. I am an elder abuse attorney, not in the traditional sense of, you know, we think about a someone scamming the elderly or a family member taking advantage of them. But I prosecute institutions, you know, nursing homes, doctors, uh, nurses, you know, even hospitals for um, abuse and neglect. And so a lot of times I work with attorneys who do elder law and, and they maybe they don't want to have anything to do with litigation or personal injury. Um, but maybe we work together because they open up the estate and they handle some of the more complex settlement issues um, involved in, in resolving some of these cases. And then I do the litigation. Um, I also have lawyers who will say, hey, I have never 
tried a nursing home case before. I've never worked on a nursing home case before. I'd love to refer you to this case, but I really want to learn from you and I want to be involved and I want to, and I've got a you know relationship with the family and let's figure out how we can work together. That works too. Um, or I have, you know, some hybrid where someone says like, I've got a, a, a client, a longtime client, like this client needs me to be involved. I want to, you know, maybe present them for their deposition or help you prep. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be involved in any of that stuff with the other defendants or experts. And so really could, could be any number of situations, whatever attorneys who want to refer the cases to us think is appropriate or, you know, whatever meets their needs best. Yeah, we had talked briefly because I'm a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys because uh, I've got my LM in elder law and, you know, really it's disability law in, in the context of what I do in planning. But it's interesting that those attorneys, you know, probably do come across instances that potentially, you know, are cases where your firm could assist. Um, so I, I wanted to ask a, a little bit of a self-serving question, but I always ask it in wrapping up the podcast just about the types of difficulties or issues that you face when you're settling a case uh you know could be dealing with medicare or liens or medicaid whatever it might be in in your niche yeah so um that's a that's a again is a great question even though it's self-serving because i think um, that, that some of the challenges in these nursing home cases are, are unique to these cases and people may not realize when they get involved that there are some significant you know, post-settlement or post-verdict issues that really require the expertise of, of, of different kinds of lawyers or specialists. So one of the things that you mentioned is liens. Um, and I often have... Uh, clients who have um, significant medical expenses as a result of what happened to them in the nursing home. And those medical expenses are often paid by Medicare, um, which, you know, of course, pays for expenses for people who are over 65 and qualify or who are disabled. And then Medicaid, which is more of a, a financial needs based program. And those liens, um, in addition to some liens that are held by private companies, who um, are, you know, essentially their, their third party um, Medicare or Medicaid providers, um, insurance companies, but they, they too will have liens. And those are the most concerning kinds of liens for a plaintiff's lawyers because they're super liens. You know, you have to like seek those out. You have to find out if those liens exist and pay them. Whereas in other cases, if you don't know about a lien or if it's not asserted, it's not necessarily your, your problem. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's some debate about that, but, but these are liens that you cannot ignore. And very often, um, those liens will be calculated, you know, in a, because they're being calculated by Medicare or Medicaid, they'll be calculated in sort of a gross fashion where they're not really taking in, into consideration um, itemization of what medical expenses might be attributable to the injury versus pre-existing conditions or these medical conditions that all these nursing home uh, patients often have. And so I've actually used Synergy to, to help me navigate some of these things where um, in, in a couple of instances, one is an instance where there's a, 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 an enormous Medicare lien, but a lot of the charges in the Medicare lien are unrelated to my case. 
And um, you have the challenge of finding out what the diagnoses codes are and how things are related. And it's kind of a, 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 a um, very overwhelming thing to navigate. And so I will often involve someone like Synergy to try to help me pull those apart and make sure that I'm really only paying what the client owes as a result of the lawsuit. And then the second um, kind of thorny issue to navigate would be something called a Medicare set aside. So, um, God, it must have been, I'm trying to think now, it's, it was probably like 13 years ago when I first heard that term. And I heard it because I was working on a medical malpractice case where a, um, a plaintiff was injured on the job sought medical treatment for uh, injuries and was the victim of medical malpractice. And so everyone was talking about this Medicare set aside that was needed because there was an underlying workers' compensation case. And at the time, which I think was 2010, you know, Medicare didn't have any guidance whatsoever for plaintiffs in regular first party, you know, personal injury cases um, where, you know, we, we didn't know if we had to, to do one or not. But because I was working on this medic, uh, uh, this work comp case and they you know knew they had to do a set aside, I learned about it. And then you know we fast forward over the years to, I think the guidance now, and, and I'm sure that um, someone at your company would be better able to speak to this, this is the rule that I live by. If you have a plaintiff who is a Medicare beneficiary who still has treatment ongoing, you have to consider their interests. So whether you have to do a set aside or not, you have to consider their interests. And so um, I actually, I, again, I usually, usually use you guys to help me figure that out. And whether it's a consideration that there are no interests because perhaps the treatment is over or you know, maybe the, the, the treatment is, is not certain or you know, maybe a doctor has said, I think you know, it's resolved or I don't think there's likely to be treatment, fine, but at least I have someone who has expertise looking at it. And then if there is treatment, I need someone to help me put together what a plan would be and help me fund it. Um, and so I've, I would encourage people, obviously, to consider those things, particularly in cases where they have living plaintiffs. Um, and so those are, you know, two things. Um, then, you know, there's often people who may be getting other sorts of benefits and may need certain kinds of trusts or um, specialty attorneys to work out how their benefits will be impacted by, the, by a settlement. Um, that tends not to be as big of an issue in a Illinois nursing home case because the Illinois Nursing Home Care Act actually protects those benefits. Um, for example, Medicaid benefits. Um, whenever they, they enacted this statute, they sort of had, had really good foresight that a lot of the potential class of people who would be impacted by the act would be Medicare beneficiaries, or Medicaid beneficiaries, rather. But, you know, it, it certainly is something that I have to think about in any personal injury or uh, medical malpractice case that I'm working on for someone who is disabled or, or, or older because there's a lot of, you know, landmines out there for settling these cases. So um, hopefully that was helpful. And, and I know you say it's self-serving, but I also think it's really appropriate to consider. Yeah, you made a lot of great points and, and all really, you got the, the Medicare set-aside issue pretty much dead on. You know, I, The way I analogize it for lawyers is just say, hey, it's sort of like 
if you got a client on Medicaid, you just need to explain to them the impact potentially of losing their eligibility because Medicare could deny care and let the clients decide ultimately what their risk tolerance allows them you know, to do when they're settling their case. So uh, really good points that you've brought up. Uh, so uh, last question, and it's open-ended. You can ask, answer it however you want. Um, so what is your view as a trial lawyer? So um, I think, you know, I, I think I'm going to actually answer that. I'm going to reframe the question a little bit because I think I've given a lot of my views as a trial lawyer throughout this podcast, hopefully. But a couple of areas that I think are worth noting um, that I've seen maybe trends in um, with, with litigation um, are, are somewhat non-traditional. So first we have, um, you referenced this before, we have, we're in a new world with um, everyone's got a camera, everyone has a phone, everyone can take videos. Um, most of the staff at the nursing home are going to have phones or cameras or videos with them at all times. And I've seen a disturbing trend of elderly people being exploited on social media. Um, and if it's posted on social media, we all know it's probably being exchanged in text or you know, emails or shared amongst friends as well, um, where they're taunting elderly people or they're filming elderly people in you know, states of undress or embarrassing or compromising um, situations. And so in the past couple of years, my firm has handled at least three of those cases. Um, two of them got national publicity where the family members learned. And, and in both situations, the family, or actually all three situations, the family members learned about this exploitation because one of the staff members who you know, was a caring, considerate, you know, well-meaning person found out and told them. Um, and, you know, I guess you could say, you know, tattled on the other, the staff members who were doing it. So I think that's something, you know, that, that is probably going to happen more and, you know, sadly, but um, that, that we've handled in the last couple of years. And then, of course, um, my firm is handling a, a huge volume of COVID-19 cases in nursing homes in Illinois. And... Right now, the litigation is kind of in its infancy, and there are a lot of motions that are pending in various circuit courts around Illinois um, by the defense. And they, um, their you know, first move in these cases is to file motions to dismiss, claiming that there was an executive order that was issued during the COVID-19 pandemic by the governor of Illinois that gives them basically unfettered immunity to do whatever the heck they want. And... I think, you know, I think that the defendants in this case are wrong. Um, I think we, we know the order exists. So the first question is, what does it mean? And if you listen to the nursing homes, it basically means that from the second there was any whiff of COVID-19, um, you know, present in Illinois, that they uh, had immunity to sort of act with any sort of carelessness or negligence that they wanted towards these residents because they were dealing with a pandemic. Um, and if you look at the language of the executive order, I think it quite clearly is not that, but um, that's one of the battles that we're fighting right now. Um, and, and our view is, 
you know, if, if there is some immunity, it's, it's, it's immunity that is, is well described and very specific. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see some decisions coming out of courts uh, in Illinois that are favorable for our clients and that we can move forward because, you know, the, the uh, pandemic was particularly hard on long-term care residents. And when you think about how a long-term care resident would get COVID, you know, they weren't letting anyone into these buildings except for their own staff. So they controlled what was going on. And most of the clients that I'm representing who got COVID-19 were bed-bound or chair-bound residents who, you know, they didn't seek it out. They weren't, you know, going into other people's rooms or, or going up to unmasked visitors or staff members, you know, and, and getting COVID-19. It was brought to them, to them. And... The other thing is, is when you look at nursing homes over the years leading up to this COVID-19 pandemic, they have been chronically understaffed and under-resourced and, um, and usually by decision of the owners to profit over using the resources to keep the residents safe. And so if this executive order means anything, um, it means that in some cases we'll have to prove that their conduct was reckless or uh, wanton or willful or, or something more than negligence. And I think when you take a look at the history of some of these facilities and their regulatory infractions, their problems with infection control and staffing, you know, they knew that they were going to be very vulnerable to an outbreak of an infectious disease whenever it was going to happen. And they made a conscious decision for years not to fix this problem. And it, you know, unfortunately ended in, in the deaths of thousands of, of nursing home residents in Illinois. So um, we've, we've committed to taking these cases and to trying to see them through and get justice for these people. And I, you know, hope that by the time this podcast airs, maybe there'll be some positive news on that front. So uh, for anyone that's listening to the podcast today, what's the best way to get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you or have questions about cases that perhaps you might be willing to co-counsel with them on? Yeah, so thank you. Um, visiting our firm's website, levinperconti.com. Um, you can find my bio there. You'll find our phone number, um, my email, which is mpb at levinperconti. That's L-E-V-I-N-P-E-R-C-O-N-T-I.com. Uh, is also probably the fastest way to get get in touch with me. And wherever I am, I'll respond. And hopefully I, I will be able to partner with some of your subscribers. Well, we'll post all of your contact details um, on the page for this particular episode of the podcast. And with that, thank you, everybody, for tuning in today to Trial Law Review. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.